For the last couple months, as a congregation, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is probably the oldest surviving account of Jesus' life and teaching. So we figured that was as good a place as any to start a new congregation. And one of the things that we've noticed over and over in Mark is that he tells stories and gives bits of teaching in cycles, specific cycles in place to make specific points. If you haven't noticed that at this point, that's probably my fault, not your fault. Jesus comes out of the gate swinging. He comes out in chapter 1 calling for allegiance, preaching a kingdom that is all-encompassing, that claims the right to command its citizens. And it call, he calls for repentance and faith, for a submission to that kingdom. Then we get Mark showing us examples from Jesus' life that, that are there to prove to us Jesus is worth trusting. So Jesus is making this all-encompassing call. How do we know that if we respond to his call, repentance and faith, that he can bear the weight that we're putting on him? Mark gives us story after story trying to illustrate Jesus' power and to convince us that he's worth trusting. Then we get responses to Jesus. Some people respond to him very well. They respond to his call with a faith that leads to action. We saw one of these last week when this guy who'd been possessed by many, many demons, demons that no one else could control, not even chains, comes running up to Jesus and falls down before him confessing his lordship and, and is healed. He responds in faith. We saw it back when some, some guys brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They, they, went, they, they so believed in his power to heal that they went to the trouble of cutting through somebody's roof to get him to Jesus in the middle of this crowd. And Jesus says, or Mark tells us, that Jesus was amazed at their faith and that on the basis of this faith, he forgives this man's sins. Those are good responses. And we, these are the responses, honestly, that we would expect, right? If you had seen Jesus heal a paralytic, if you had seen him calm a storm or, or, or cast out a legion of demons, you would expect that all of us would just fall down before him right there and, and yield our lives to his kingdom in response to his call. And if Mark's narrative was a Disney movie, that's exactly what would happen every single time. But it's far more complicated than that. The remarkable thing about what we've seen so far in this story Mark is telling us is that in spite of all that Jesus does, some people, and the people that we might most expect to respond well to him, refuse to believe. Unbelief is a pervasive problem in the ministry of Jesus. That's what we've seen over and over. That cycle has repeated itself in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then again in chapters 4 and 5. And last week we got Mark's Stories proving that Jesus is worth trusting, proving that his call to submit to the kingdom is one you should respond well to. And in chapter 6, what we come to today, we get another example of unbelief. Mark is teaching us in chapter 6, in other words, how not to respond to Jesus. His purpose has never been just to entertain us with these stories, but to, to tell us stories that call for a particular response from us. And he's illustrating the response that we should have through a couple of really bad responses to Jesus. In chapter 6, those bad responses come from two groups, ironically, that we would think would be most enthusiastic about him. It comes from his hometown when he returns to Nazareth after doing all these amazing things elsewhere. He's rejected there, 
And then later, in two stories that are very familiar to us, the feeding of the 5,000 and the story about Jesus walking on the water, we see that even his own disciples, who had had, uh, who, who had, had sort of backstage passes to all that Jesus had done and taught, even his disciples don't fully believe in him. What we want to see today is, is unbelief that comes from overexposure to Jesus and unbelief that comes from underappreciation of the things that Jesus has done. And in the insight that Mark gives us here, we see, we see what it is that could lead us to unbelief in the way that, we, that, 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 they, that these people suffered from it. And, and hopefully we see a roadmap for avoiding that response. That's where we're headed today. First, we've got a long chapter to read. I'm going to ask you to stand anyway in honor of God's word as we turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we've got Bibles uh, at the end of every row. Someone would be happy to hand that down to you. Uh, And we'll read now beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. This is the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah, and others said. He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? 
And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He didn't want to break his word to her. Immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore... He saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they had got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. This is God's word. You may be seated. Chapter 6 opens up on the heels of a barrage of stories illustrating the amazing power of Jesus. Last week we looked at his, his calming of the, of, of the forces of nature. We looked at his power over the forces of evil. We looked at his, his power to heal someone that, that even all the doctors that money could buy could not heal. And we saw that he even was able to raise a girl from death. And so now... Chapter 6 opens, and we're expecting people to flock to him, eager to submit 
their lives to him and receive the blessings that he's freely giving. We especially expect this because we're told at the beginning of chapter 6 that he heads back to his hometown. And clearly, this guy was the most famous person ever to come out of Nazareth. Nazareth was just a little town. I mean, you, can, you remember the, the comment about Jesus in another gospel that, that how could he be worth anything? How, when has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? You can imagine that these people, they hadn't read the newspapers, right? But they had they'd heard reports. Surely people who had been traveling around had heard what Jesus was doing and, and word was filtering back to his hometown that this guy who seemed so normal before is now doing all these amazing things. And what we'd expect is that he'd be a hometown hero. We expect him to come back to Nazareth with some sort of parade. I mean, the image I get is that, is that scene from It's a Wonderful Life. You remember where Harry comes back from the war and he's won the Congressional Medal of Honor and poor George is just there you know, working, trying to save the family business, and, and Harry is like this hero. You guys remember this? Surely I'm not the only one who's watched It's a Wonderful Life. And they, they just keep firing these newspaper headlines up on the, on the screen preparing for him to come, and then the, the whole town is out for a parade, and they give him this key to the city. That's kind of what I'm expecting Nazareth to do as you, as you first hear Jesus is coming back home. Lindsay and I are from a small town, South Alabama. They've got a sign up in Lindsay's hometown called XL. they got a sign saying population number, which is like 570 or maybe 71. But right beside that population sign, which is about this big, they've got this massive sign saying XL Alabama, home of Leroy Jordan, who was this famous player for the evil empire under Bear Bryant. Uh, he played back in the 70s, maybe. And this is still how that town remembers, that's how the town identifies themselves. We're where Leroy Jordan is from. We're also from outside another small town where Harper Lee, the, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, lives and grew up and wrote, wrote the book about that town. And, and it's everywhere. I mean, you can't go anywhere without seeing the iconic signs up from the book, the courthouse or the, the, the bird itself or, or something about Harper Lee. She's, she's everywhere in that town. And that's what I'm expecting for Jesus when he comes home, a key to the city. But the difference is that these celebrities who come to their home, home small towns, these celebrities are a source of pride for their people. They add to how their people identify themselves. They're an accessory to their lives that makes them look better or, or feel more significant about where they're from and who they are. Jesus is not that kind of accessory. When Jesus comes in, he comes in teaching. The Sabbath comes, Mark tells us. He, he enters the synagogue like he always does. And Mark doesn't tell us what he said, but we can assume he was saying the same kinds of things that he'd been saying elsewhere. We can assume that he was saying things like, the kingdom of God is here, it's now, it's in me, and you've got to repent and believe. We can assume, I think, that, that this account may even be the same account that Luke records in, in, um, in, in, in his gospel, where Jesus comes into the synagogue in Nazareth, opens up the law and the prophets, and reads a passage from Isaiah chapter 61. Luke tells us Jesus in his hometown synagogue read this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads this messianic passage, this passage that is evoking God's faithfulness to his promises, a promise to of one who is coming to redeem his people from their oppression. And then he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one. I'm the one. That's what Jesus says. 
He came back home teaching the same things he'd been teaching abroad. The same kind of all-encompassing call for allegiance to him and his kingdom. And in his hometown, this was seen as nothing short of audacity. This was the guy they had watched grow up as just another boy among many. This was the guy who lived a simple carpenter's life. A guy who had built their tables for them. And now he's calling for their allegiance? You can understand their questions. Isn't this the, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James? Aren't his sisters here with us? They had categories for Jesus in place, for understanding him. They understand him perhaps as a really gifted, skilled carpenter. They had a category, son of Mary, in which Jesus fit very nicely. Brother of James and Joseph. They didn't have a category for this kind of authority that he's claiming. The Jesus they knew couldn't account for this kind of power he's claiming to have and to exercise. They'd been so familiar with Jesus, they'd been so exposed to him, that their understanding of him and who he could be was frozen. Exposure to Jesus, one commentator writes, and and the gospel is no guarantee of faith. Indeed, apart from faith, exposure to the gospel inoculates as often as it enlivens. What we see has happened here in Nazareth, what I think we can see happens to us and certainly to many in our, in our culture is that we have enough understanding of Jesus to know who he is, something about who he is, enough to have moved on in our minds from trying to investigate and, and know him more deeply. It's enough to get a sense, but not enough to get the reality of him. It's enough to keep us, in fact, from seeing him for who he is. It's like vaccination. You get a little bit of the disease in you to keep you from getting all of the disease in you. We have, and and Jesus' hometown, had so much exposure to him early on with so little faith that they could no longer account for a Jesus that didn't fit their preconceived notions of, of who he was. And I think, as I was reading this story today, I'm seeing our culture Falling guilty, I think, of the same exact sins. I've seen it in myself. So, so many of us grow up hearing about Jesus. We grow up with a certain idea of who he is and, 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 and what he provides to us. Our culture in particular is, is covered up with this cultural Christianity so that everyone feels comfortable enough with Jesus to have, to have stopped investigating more deeply into who he is. I think this cultural Christianity shows itself in two really big problems. Either we, we settle for a Jesus who just supplies us with a basic moral code. We're just good Christian people. He's good Christian people. You've heard that phrase? A Jesus who supplies us with a certain sense that we're to treat other people like we want to be treated ourselves. That we're maybe not to, not to, to lie or to cheat. That we're maybe to you know, give to charity because Jesus was a very giving person. Something, some sort of basic moral code supplied by Jesus. A moral code that strips him of the need to be our savior. To provide something not just that sets an example for us, but that does something for us and to us. That comes from outside of us and transforms us. We don't need that kind of Jesus. If Jesus is a supplier of, of a moral code. That's one problem, I think. We settle for a Jesus who is an example rather than something that that has to come in and transform us. Another problem is 
is what you may have heard called easy believism. We're just so familiar in our culture with, with a Jesus who is sort of a get-out-of-hell-free card. A Jesus who we know loved us, did something on the cross, and we know that there's maybe some, of, some ritual action that, that gets that power to, to apply to us. Maybe it's walking an aisle or saying a special prayer or whatever, but, but this Jesus is, is one in our background who has saved us, and now we're okay to, to, to move on with our lives. So the first problem is a Jesus who, who's, who's not a savior. He just has to set you an example. He doesn't do anything for you. The second problem is a Jesus who's, who's not Lord. He's maybe an easy believism kind of savior, but he's, he doesn't interact with your life in a way that shapes it and, and controls it. There's no need for submission to the authority that Jesus is claiming to have. I think overexposure to a Jesus that is a shell of the real thing is a source of unbelief, certainly in Jesus' own hometown and, and, and in our culture as well. The unbelief from overexposure. The next story we want to see is unbelief, shows us unbelief from underappreciation. Unbelief from underappreciation. If the first negative response to Jesus Mark gives us as an example, a sort of cautionary tale, comes from his relatives and longtime friends, the second one comes ironically from those who are even deeper inside his circle. The irony is that while demon-possessed people fall down and worship him, those who have been walking around with Jesus, seeing him do all these amazing things, hearing his parables explained, they're the ones who fail to believe in him fully, at least at this stage of their life. This group of stories we want to focus in on, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water, comes after a major middle section of this chapter that time won't let us dive into. It's, it's almost an aside, a, a parenthesis for Mark that helps to fill out the story of John the Baptist that he introduced us to back in chapter 1. So, so we get Jesus dividing up his disciples again. The, the work has gotten too big for him, so he commissions them to go out and do what he's been doing, to, to free people from possession of evil spirits, to, to heal, to preach the kingdom. And they go out, and they're doing it so much that word even comes to Herod of, of what Jesus is and, and the kinds of things that he's doing. Once the word gets to Herod, Mark uses this as a launching pad to talk about what Herod had done to John the Baptist. See, Herod's afraid that Jesus might just be a ghost from his past. After the John the Baptist story, the disciples come back. They've successfully done the things Jesus has asked them to do. And it's this very success in their ministry that sets up the next two stories. The disciples seem to get it. Even They seem to get why Jesus mattered. They've given their lives to following him. They've been out ministering on his behalf. And now, when we come to these stories, we see that they, they still fail to appreciate who Jesus is. So the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. These are two stories that Mark puts together back to back very specifically. So Jesus' disciples return from their ministry, and Jesus says, we've got to go rest. So they hop in a boat, and they try to go to what Mark calls a desolate place. They're going out into the wilderness to get away from people and detox a little bit. Unfortunately, the people get wind of this idea, and they, they, they don't hop in boats. They make their way around land to get to the other side in time, and, and they're there, and, and it's packed out. More crowds, so big even that it's, it's become a logistical problem because Jesus has compassion on them. He sees them as sheep with no shepherd, and, and he's the shepherd that has been promised. And now he's here. And, and so he has to address them, so he spends time teaching them. The day grows late. The day grows late, and they have nothing to eat. And this sets the stage for yet another 
amazing miracle of Jesus' power. This, is, this story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. It's, it has major significance for Jesus' identity. That's why all of them included it. And it gets cited again later, even in Mark, to show just how important Mark thought that it was. Jesus, in this account, shows us yet again his power. It's not about sharing. Unfortunately, it's, it's so often been taught as a, as a moral lesson that you should share what we have. Mark doesn't even tell us who these loaves and fish belong to. It's not about sharing. It's about Jesus' ability. But it sets up a story of unbelief. Now, the basics, very familiar. People far from home, needing food. Jesus tells the disciples to feed them, and they come back at him with this almost sarcastic question. What are we going to give us 200 denarii to go out and buy food for these people? Are you kidding me? Even if we had that kind of money, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. Where are we going to find bread? The disciples just do not believe. And we can understand why. This is crazy talk. Jesus is in face. He just says, go get me what you got. They bring it back. It's five loaves. It's two fish. Clearly, barely enough to feed one person, much less 5,000, and still he is in phase. Jesus receives it. He gives thanks for it, commands them to, to spread the people out, and then he begins dividing. And it just keeps coming. It just keeps coming so much that not only is everyone filled and satisfied, but there, is, there are 12 baskets left over. Those are the basics of the story. Another remarkable illustration of Jesus' power. But there's another layer. There's another layer, and this is what the disciples miss. In this story, not only do we see yet another time where Jesus is, is showing himself to be powerful, we see allusions to many Old Testament ideas about God's provision for his people and the one who would come to ultimately provide for them. In the story, we see yet another reason to believe that Jesus is the one come in to organize the people of God as a kingdom and to represent them before God. Lots of examples of this. I'm only going to mention a couple. When Jesus sees the crowd, he says, he, he refers to them as sheep without a shepherd. That's a direct quote from Moses' own prayer at the conclusion of his ministries. He knows he's about to die. In Numbers chapter 27, he prays to God asking for a new shepherd to come for his people, and he refers to his people as, as sheep without a shepherd as Moses is passing off the scene. Israel's history from that point is waiting for that shepherd. David was a certain kind of shepherd, but even he was not the one they had been waiting for. Jesus, seeing his people, asserts that, that he is that shepherd they've been waiting for, and now he's going to prove it through his power to provide for them. The setting and the problem itself is another allusion to God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament. Here we have another huge group of people out in the middle of the wilderness with no food. Numbers chapter 11 presents the exact same situation. I'm not going to read it for you today. We don't have time for that, but I'd, I think you would really enjoy reading it, especially verses, 11, uh, verses 13 and, and 21 and 22. In Numbers chapter 11, God tells Moses, we've got to feed these people, and Moses responds to him with the same kind of sarcasm that the disciples responded to. Where am I going to get food for all these people? You want to feed them with meat, and we're out here in the middle of the desert? And, of course, the Lord provides quail for them. Here we have the same exact scenario set up, only that was of only a foreshadowing of the relationship between God and his people that Jesus is now bringing in the kingdom of God. These are the points the disciples should have seen. They should have seen someone powerful enough to do what had been promised. That's what they should have seen. 
but the next story shows they don't see it. In the story of Jesus walking on the water, another one that's very familiar to us probably from, from even from our childhood for many of us, we're familiar with it. Perhaps we haven't noticed how closely the stories fit together. The basics of the story are Jesus has sent his disciples back out on the water. He's gone off to pray, but he knows somehow that they're in trouble, that the wind has come, they're, they're struggling to make any kind of headway, and, and so he goes to them on the sea. In their distress, he comes walking on the water. If, we weren't, if it wasn't so familiar to us, I think our reaction should be, at first, this is just pretty random as a miracle, right? So you're walking on the water? What's that about? I mean, there's, out of all the, the miracles that he'd done, this one seems strange to me. You would think he could have just calmed the sea on their behalf from the shore, right? He's done it when he was in the boat. He, he, he's shown that he has power, just about any kind of power that he wants to use. Why, why come to them on the sea? I think the randomness, though, disappears if we recognize this is another allusion to the Old Testament reinforcing the same point that Mark made with the feeding of the 5,000. This is God himself showing himself to his people. I think the sign that we get that this is what's going on in this story is that Jesus, Mark tells us, Jesus comes to them on the sea, but he was going past them. You see that reference in, in verse 48? About the fourth watch of the night, Mark says, he came to them walking on the sea, and he, he meant to pass by them. That seems so random. It seems so strange that he would come to them, but not directly to them to to, to save them. It almost sounds like he was just going to let them be and go right on by. Unless we realize that here, this is an allusion directly to the God's, to God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament. The same exact word, the same expression about passing by was used for God's revelation of himself to Moses in, in, in Exodus chapter 33. Remember, Moses couldn't see God's full glory, so he, he hides himself behind the rock and God passes by him. The same exact imagery for Elijah at Mount Horeb in 1 Kings chapter 19 and most directly from the book of Job. In Job chapter 9, a beautiful section of poetry, we're told that God, I'm quoting here, God stretches the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. When he passes me, I cannot see him. Mark is essentially quoting from Job in this story, in the way that he sets it up. Jesus came to them to show them he was God. And if they didn't get it in the symbolism of the story, they should get it in his words to them. Because when he reaches them, he says, do not fear, it is I. That is the same exact wording of God's speech to Moses when he said, I am. Jesus comes to them and says, I am. The disciples don't get it. Mark has consistently been more critical of them than other gospel writers. It's one of his chief ironies that those who are most likely to accept Jesus often miss him. Here, Mark says, I think the key is in verse 51 and 52, they didn't understand about the loaves. And their hearts were hardened. The disciples' unbelief the hardening of their heart, the same kind of hardening that we told is true of the Pharisees earlier, this hardening of their heart, their failure to understand, comes from not getting the point of what Jesus had already done for them. They missed the point of the loaves. They didn't understand the loaves. 
Mark gives us this negative example to warn us against missing the significance of Jesus, to show that faith in him is never an automatic response to indisputable evidence, to throw us back on prayer for the power of the Spirit to help us to see Jesus for who he is. There are any number of ways I imagine you have struggled to get the point of the loaves in your own life. I I wouldn't try to pry into that and and guess. I do want to close quickly with a couple of examples from my own life where I have missed the the point of what God has done for me in the past. I, I think one in particular, as I've struggled with doubt over the years, I've often thought if I could just have a little bit more evidence, if Jesus could just show himself to me, Clearly and explicitly, I would believe, and, I, and all the doubt would scatter from my mind. So I've waited to commit, waiting on that next silver bullet. I can't imagine, though, a silver bullet any more clear than feeding 5,000 people or walking on the water and claiming, I am. And the disciples are still astounded and confused by what they've seen. I couldn't get anything more clear. I could never have asked for anything more explicit than this. And the disciples, after all they'd seen, didn't get it. How am I to assume that that I would get it if I had more? I think what Mark is calling me to in my struggles with doubt is, is to appreciate the evidence I've already got and to make my decision based on that, on who Jesus has already shown himself to be in my life, rather than waiting on the fences for more. More is never the answer. Faith is what is required. I think, too, that... I think, too, about the tendency that faced with new circumstances, we often lose sight of the ways that God has delivered us in the past. The disciples had seen Jesus deliver so many times, in so many dramatic ways, but with this new and vivid storm that seemed so much more real than what they'd seen Jesus do before, they lost sight of his power and his ability. I'm pushing back against this own kind of unbelief in my life right now. So we're waiting on the birth of our first child any day now. And we know, because we have, we have good testimony to this fact, that uh, there's a major reorientation of our lifestyle headed our way. We know that it has major implications for our finances and for our living situation. And, uh, and, and this comes as one of many things that make this a year of transition for us, trying to finish graduate school and starting a new congregation there's all this stuff that seems up in the air in our lives and i and i fight anxiety in that but when i look back on what god has done for me in my past in in other years of transition i think back to the time when Lindsay and i were barely 20 and we were married and moving to a new city to, to nashville to start a graduate school and a challenging program for me and new job for Lindsay, and we didn't know anybody and and i i think back on that time and and see how God delivered us with a solid local church full of people who loved us and invested in us with uh, a provision for, for living. Uh, I think back to being in graduate school and wondering about what the job market was going to look like when I got out and, and, and not seeing any sign that I could expect to have a job when I got out because people don't value church historians anymore in, this, in our day and age. I remember thinking that, and, and yet again, God has, God has provided and, and led us He's delivered every time, and now we're facing all this, this new transition, and I'm still anxious and, and fearful often. I've failed, in other words, to understand about the loaves. I've failed to understand the times when Jesus has fed the 5,000 5, in, in my own experience. Don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming that everything has always worked out, that if you just believe in Jesus, everything's going to be great. 
there are many times where I faced a disappointment in my life where if, if, if you had told me the thing was going to happen, this disappointing thing was going to happen before it did, I would have said that would represent God not delivering me, God not being there for me. But in hindsight, it's always been deliverance. It's always been pain towards, towards a good and, and productive end. My life, in other words, is full of loaves that Jesus has multiplied, but it's still a daily fight to avoid joining the disciples in their unbelief. It's easy for us to be hard on them, to wonder how they could miss it after everything that they'd seen. But everything that they had seen to this point, even the feeding of the 5,000, pales in comparison to the miracle that is Jesus' death and resurrection. We have that in our past to cling to when we are faced with fear in our present and future. Ultimately, we have a testimony they didn't have. Summarized nowhere more clearly than by Paul in Romans 8, where he tells us that if God didn't spare his own son, how will he not also freely give us all things? That there is neither height nor depth nor any other created thing that can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. That's the loaf. That's the ultimate display of God's love and power in our background. And when we face fear and anxiety, when our present circumstances wash out all memory of his past grace and favor, we should cling to this never-changing promise that God is for us in Christ and that if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. We pray to him, in other words, for faith to see things clearly. Will you pray with me? This is beyond our power, Lord. We are no better than the disciples were, and we have again and again been tempted to, uh, to unbelief, and we see evidence of the fact that, uh, that we are just not aware of all the things you've done for us. We pray you would help us to be more aware, that you would make it vivid and clear to us the ways that you've delivered, and that your grace would operate in us to bring us to a more deep and lasting faith in your, present, your presence in our lives and, and your love for us in Christ. This is a miracle when it happens, and that's what we ask you for in the name of Jesus. Amen.